Good morning again, and welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, Church, you sounded really good singing. It's uh, banded great as always, but uh, welcome to summer at Hiawatha, where we move from two services down to one, which has been a great rhythm for our church. We're able to gather together, see people we haven't seen in a long time because they go to the opposite service, give uh, a bunch of our volunteers and ministries a bit of a break uh, since we moved to one service, and we just get to have a, a full sanctuary and lots of, uh, lots of energy and volume when we sing. So thanks for squishing a little bit this summer for dealing with an AC that uh, breaks three, four times in a month-long uh, uh, period there, and, um, and it's also really great to have the De Bruins here. Um, we, we like to say this often, if you don't know our global missionaries, if you haven't met them before, they want to meet you. They, they actually do want to meet you. If you don't know them, it could seem awkward to go up to a stranger and say, hey, I'm this person. I just want to introduce myself. But they like that. They consider, or they are members here at Hiawatha. This is their home church. And so they want to know who you are. They've been gone for, for many years now. And uh, so that we have gotten lots of new people. So if you are available, stick around. Uh, come downstairs for that lunch and uh, introduce yourselves to Denny and Nicole and their family. I uh, guarantee you will enjoy it. They are Really, really great people, and it's, it's great to have them back. Uh, right now, we are in a sermon series in the book of Acts, which is a, a New Testament uh, book. It's written historically. It's uh, teaching theology, but it is uh, an uh, eyewitness account of what happened after uh, the, the few decades after Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So, so far in the book, Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to fill his followers, who now become the early church, and, and the, the church is born, hence our uh, subtitle of our sermon series, uh, The Church is Born. And it's both the universal church, meaning all Christians everywhere, as well as uh, individual local churches. They are also born. What we've seen throughout Acts so far is that the universal church is now sending church planters and global missionaries across the ancient world in order to establish or plant, start new local churches. So recently in Acts, we've seen these two main characters, especially in the past uh, few chapters, a guy named Paul and another guy named Barnabas. They were sent as church planters out of a church in Antioch uh, through a, a dangerous, expensive journey over hundreds of miles in order to spread this good news, this new good news that Jesus is risen, that he's reigning eternal, uh, eternally. He is the king, both of Jews and Gentiles, and that through trust in him, Forgiveness of sin is now possible. Death can now be overcome. And reconciliation between God and between others is now possible. And the Spirit's been using uh, these guys in powerful ways. They went on this long uh, church planning uh, journey, and, and many, many uh, churches were started. And then last week, uh, Mark, one of our elders, preached on uh, chapter 15, which is, uh, there's a ton going on there, but I'll try to briefly summarize. And so as this gospel is spreading, it's not just going to synagogues, not just Jewish communities, even though Jesus was Jewish himself, he was the Jewish Messiah, and the first Christians were all Jewish. But now, thousands and thousands and thousands of Gentiles are trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so now there's this big debate between Jewish Christians, Jewish people who grew up Jewish, are ethnically Jewish, have now converted to Christianity, and then these Gentile Christians. And there's this discussion, this debate, this conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians asking the question, does someone need to first fully convert into Judaism before they can be a Christian? So since Christianity is coming out of 
Judaism, do people have to first become Jews? Do they have to first become circumcised and, and, and follow and continue to follow the law of Moses in order to be a Christian or not? And so uh, the Jewish council meets uh, a bunch of Christians from all over the ancient world, come back into Jerusalem, talk with the disciples, with the elders. It says that the Holy Spirit was also there leading them and it was pleasing to all the leaders and the church through the Holy Spirit to answer this question. And so the big question, can a person just become a Christian or do they first have to become a Jew and then kind of stay a Jew by following the law and getting circumcised in order to become a Christian? And so they all come together and they, uh, the answer is a resounding yes. A person can just come to Christ. Christians no longer, or uh, Christians do not need to get circumcised. They do not need to follow the law of Moses. So essentially that was their answer. And the church rejoiced, especially the Gentile Christians who said, this is really great that we don't have to do all this stuff, that all we need is just Jesus. So then from there, uh, Paul and Barnabas go from Jerusalem back to Antioch, the church where they were initially sent out of, and a few more guys come along. Silas, a guy we're going to see today, also went back. And that is now where we pick up our passage today. So the, the Jerusalem Council sends out people to tell all these new churches that this is what uh, Christianity is, that you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to become a Jew first. So the next part of Acts that we're going to unpack uh, in the next few chapters is Paul's second church planning journey, his second missionary journey. He initially wants to go back to the exact same churches that he started and encourage them and, and bring them this good news that the Jerusalem Council laid out, yet the Holy Spirit has other plans. And he uses a conflict that, that Peter alluded to. The Holy Spirit's going to use this conflict between these two guys, between Paul and Barnabas, in order to create more space for leaders, in order to multiply their missionary efforts to do, to do two, two different parts of the world. And uh, it's going to move from now just modern-day Turkey all the way to Greece and beyond. So this morning, our sermon title is, is uh, We Can't Stop, we being humanity, Christians, we can't stop God's mission, whether it's through our, our sin, whether it's through our imperfections, whether it's through even conflict, like we're going to see in today's passage. Whether it's disagreements, flaws among leaders, conflict, even sin, the gospel will not stop spreading. The gospel will not stop saving people. We're going to be reading from Acts 15, the end of the chapter there, through 16.5. And it's kind of two different sections, so we're going to break it up and uh, look at both of those separately. So let's start with the very first one. So Acts 15, uh, verses 36 through the end of the chapter. You can follow along in your uh, sermon inserts as well as it'll be on the, the screen behind me. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Paul took Mark with, or Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. 
All right, so the very first thing that we see is that there's this sharp conflict between Paul and Barnabas, this sharp conflict between two of the main guys in this church planting team that the Spirit's been using in powerful ways to spread the gospel all across the ancient world over the past couple years. But even though this conflict gets quite heated, so much so that they can't even come to an agreement, they, they, they disagree so much that they part ways, that they say this is irreconcilable. We cannot decide what to do. So even though they go their separate ways, God's mission doesn't stop. God's sovereign plan of spreading the gospel and more churches being started, more people being saved, continues, even though this conflict seems like a very dark part in the story. And the reason for this great conflict is this guy, John Mark. So you might be asking, who is this guy? Who is this guy that, that broke up the Beatles of church planting in the first century? Well, if you, you maybe remember this guy, uh, he said his name is John, also called Mark, so he goes by both names. Uh, he's a cousin of Barnabas. His mom is a, a lady named Mary, and it was in Mary's house that the, the church was meeting at, if you remember a few chapters ago, when Peter was in prison, and the angel came and broke them out, and then Peter went to the home. That was uh, John Mark's mother, Mary, her home. And this guy, he was ministry partners with Paul and Barnabas. So if you remember, on their very first church planning journey, their first missionary journey, there was three guys, Paul, Barnabas, and this guy named Mark. He was ministry partners with them, and he was a part of the first few cities uh, where uh, the gospel spread. And he was a main component of this church planning team. But just a few, just a few months into this first church planning journey, he abandoned them. So if you uh, like maps, you remember this maps, Paul Barnabas and John Mark were sent out of this church in Antioch. They went to Cyprus and planted churches here and here, and then they go up into uh, this, this region here. And this is where John Mark abandons them. So he even gets this, his own little line where he uh, just ditches them and sails back to Jerusalem all by himself. So you probably remember that a few chapters ago that that's what John Mark did. And that's why Paul is so, uh, why he's digging in his heels. And so we're not sure why John Mark abandoned them. Uh, at worst, he just deserted them. He deserted them out of fear, out of cowardice, out of discouragement, or out of selfish. Maybe at best the reason he left them was because he was sick, or maybe because he was homesick. But regardless of the why, for Paul, this was such a big deal that he says, no way, I'm not going to budge on this, Barnabas. This is so important, we're not going to bring this guy along again. He almost ruined it before. It was really hard on us, and so we're not going to give this guy a second chance. So we see this conflict between Paul and Barnabas. In verse 37, we read, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, uh, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, which that phrase, sharp disagreement, uh, people think it, it uh, in Greek, even has connotations of a fight. Like they even threw down. They were getting so upset with each other, it led to maybe even a physical altercation, so that they separated with each other. So kind of crazy, right? We think these two great church planting, church planting global missionary types are, are so uh, confident that they are right and the other person is wrong. They have this huge disagreement that is irreconcilable. And while that is the case, what we see here, 
as we continue to read this story, Acts doesn't stop right here and say, well, the gospel stopped going forward. People in Greece, tough luck. Paul and Barnabas couldn't get along. But what we see is that God's plan is not thwarted neither by our sin nor our weakness. So whether this conflict was a ton of sin or whether it was just a strong disagreement without sin, that it's not clear which it was, regardless of those, God's plan is not thwarted by our sin or by our weakness. So while this conflict was, was so uh, severe that they couldn't agree to an agreement and did part ways, God's plan continues. The gospel still goes forward. It still encourages uh, new churches. It still starts brand new churches, and believers are encouraged and built up. So Barnabas takes John Mark. If you remember, Barnabas's name means son of encouragement. So Barnabas is a guy that loves others, that is great at encouraging people, that probably wants to give others second chances, including this John Mark that he loves, who's also his cousin. So Barnabas takes John Mark, and they sail to Cyprus, which is that, that island that we saw, first place Paul and Barnabas went when they did their first missionary journey. And then Paul takes a new guy. He takes this guy named Silas, who initially was a leader in the Jerusalem, Jerusalem church, and they head north into a different area. And so the Spirit uses both of these men and both of their missions, even despite their sin and weakness. So despite Paul and Barnabas and their ministry uh, being written about in the actual Bible, you might think, hey, I've really arrived as a leader, as a minister, if my work gets written about in the Bible. But that's the case for these guys, right? And we maybe, uh, we hear about this often, maybe you struggle with this too, we often glamorize the early church, right? We look at what's written in uh, the book of Acts, we read about what's going on in the early church, maybe the first uh, uh, couple centuries, and we think, wow, they really had it together. That is where it's at. We have to get back to the early church. They were so close to Jesus' life, just a few years or a few decades away. They were so pure. The Holy Spirit filled them in such great ways. And while all that is true, that God was doing some incredible and world-altering things through the early church, the author of Acts, the guy named Luke, he does not let us be fooled to think that the early church was perfect. Luke gives us uh, a look behind the, the curtain of what's going on in ministry and in these early churches. Over and over and over again, we've seen the messiness, the sin, the brokenness, the flaws, the conflict that's going on in the early church, including even with uh, some of the leaders. The history of the church in the first few decades is not whitewashed by the book of Acts. And in kind of a strange way, this brings us encouragement, right? If you are in this room and you're not a perfect Christian or you're not a perfect leader, or you're a part of a church that's not perfect, this can bring us some comfort, right? It's not just us that get annoyed by people in our church. It's not just us that have imperfect leaders or uh, have conflict within our church. The apostles, the first church planters, the first missionaries, the early church, the characters in the Bible, in the New Testament, and here in the book of Acts, they were all imperfect sinners, just like us, saved by grace. They weren't superheroes. They were just sinners that God choose, chose to forgive and to use. So while we can learn a lot from them and their stories, and hopefully you're being very encouraged as we go through the book of Acts, let us see that uh, what the author, or let us see that people, even like Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, 
that even if he is your ministry partner, there still can be conflict. We're all still sinners in need of grace. We're all in the process of being sanctified. We're all in need of forgiveness for God, from God and from others. So give each other grace. Give your leaders grace. Give your church grace. Give people in your family, in your community group, and in whatever ministry you volunteer in, give them grace, knowing that we are all sinners in need of God's grace. And even with this sober reality that we are full of sin and that we are broken, we see that God still has a beautiful plan and that it's not ruined, that his plan of building, growing, and sustaining churches continues. Despite imperfect servants, Jesus' gospel continues to go forth more and more. More people are baptized. More churches are started. More Christians persevere. And not only is God's mission not thwarted by our sin, our weakness, or our conflict, but we also see here God uses imperfect and flawed people for ministry. Obviously, Paul and Barnabas and these other guys and gals are talented, right? We're not saying they're not talented, that they don't have great wisdom, that they don't have incredible grit, all the stuff that they're going through. But Luke continues to give us a glimpse that these people are imperfect, as well as everyone else in the early church. These men are still flawed, despite planting many, many churches. And unlike most ancient writings, Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't just focus on the main character's success, or even embellish, saying how strong or how great they were, but Luke also mentions their imperfections, flaws, conflicts, and even sins. And not only does Acts give us a great, authentic, and unfiltered glimpse into real ministry, real church life, and what it takes to do things like discipleship, church planning, and evangelism, but to those who are flawed, those who are imperfect sinners, it gives us hope, right? So maybe you are like Paul. Maybe your personality is more like, hey, John Mark abandoned us. He betrayed us. He created so much work for us. I can't trust him anymore. This next missionary journey is too important. Or maybe you more sympathize with Barnabas by saying, come on, can't we just be compassionate? Can't we give this guy a second chance? I'll take the burden on myself. Let's, let's give this guy another chance to learn. Either, whether you feel more like Paul or whether you sympathize more with Barnabas, seeing these guys as flawed people gives us hope. God can and does use flawed people for his kingdom. He uses them in many different ways. He uses flawed and imperfect people to raise children. He uses flawed and imperfect people to serve behind the scenes, to fund ministries, to exercise hospitality. He uses flawed people for ministry to do things like evangelize the lost and to lead the church and to shepherd other Christians. And we could go on and on and on. God doesn't give up on us. He doesn't give up on imperfect sinners. No one is without hope. He sends his Holy Spirit into flawed, imperfect people, we Christians, and he reminds us, I got this. If we think about the two main characters so far in the book of Acts, this is their stories as well, right? We think about Paul and Peter, two of the main characters so far, and this is their story. Peter was a hot-headed disciple, who just never seemed to get it before Jesus' death and resurrection. And he even deserted and denied Jesus the night that he was betrayed and eventually crucified. Yet, Jesus forgave him. 
And he empowered him and restored him. And even made Peter the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul also was a moron, right? He was, he was a terrorist against the church. He was literally planning and carrying out the murder and the imprisonment of many, many Christians. Yet Jesus interrupts his murderous self-righteousness and saves him. And now makes him a church planter and missionary. He empowers him to preach the gospel and to start churches all over the ancient world. And at the very same time, this same guy, this is Mark's story as well. We don't see the full story here in Acts, but later in the New Testament, we see Paul write about this guy. So Paul writes a ton of letters back to these churches that he's planted. And in many of them, Paul says, this guy, he's my son. This guy, I love this guy, John Mark. He even says one place, send Mark to me, wherever Paul's at. I forget where he's at. Send Mark to me because he's very helpful and useful in the ministry. And so this is Mark's story as well. He goes from a deserter, a coward, someone who is fearful to now restored and empowered by God. Not because he's a great person, but because Jesus loves him and forgives him and uses a flawed person. In fact, Mark not only helps out uh, Paul and Barnabas as well, but he also helps out uh, the apostle Peter, like, like uh, we just talked about, that same guy, Peter, the, the leader in the uh, early church in Jerusalem. And Peter also loved Mark deeply, even calling him a son in the faith. And it was through this relationship that John Mark has with Peter, the apostle Peter, that, uh, so Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was an eyewitness of everything Jesus uh, said and did, his miracles, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. And Peter actually directed this guy, Mark, to write uh, a gospel. And so Mark is actually the author of the second book in the New Testament through that relationship with, uh, with Peter. And so God uses and restores weak and ineffective people, people who are flawed and imperfect and sinful. God demonstrates his power in our weakness. And, I, and uh, back to Paul for just a second. Paul got this. Even though he was pretty impressive in some ways, he also knew just how weak and broken and sinful he really was. He wrote these personal uh, words describing his own flaws and weaknesses. He writes back to another church, talking about his own imperfections and flaws. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul writes, But he, but the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So then Paul responds, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So whether it's a murder, murderous terrorist trying to destroy the church, a cowardly, impulsive denier of Christ, or even a young, homesick, fearful man who abandoned his church planning team, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. He uses flawed people for the expansion of the gospel, the strengthening of his church, the spread of his fame, and the joy of his people. So if you can resonate with that, if you feel imperfect today, if you feel flawed, if you feel broken or weak, or like you don't know enough, or like you don't have enough experience, or that you're not strong enough to be used by God in any type of way, let these guys' stories encourage you. This is the way that God works. 
you're a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and that Spirit will empower you. He will use you. He will enlighten you. He will teach you and use you for meaningful work in the kingdom of God. And even if, even when you stumble and fall and are imperfect, you're not going to be stuck on the sideline forever. Some of you need to hear that today. Even when you stumble and fall, you're not going to be stuck on the sideline forever as if your weakness thwarted God's plan. Rather, as Paul reminds us, it is in our weakness that God's power is made perfect. When we're flawed and imperfect, it shows off God's power even more clearly. And in all of this, we see the gospel displayed. When weak people are used by God, we see the gospel demonstrated. Undeserving men and women being used by God for eternal and meaningful work, not based on their impressiveness or power, but just because God loves them, just because his spirit is inside of them, and just because he wants to give them more and more of his grace. Our story continues. The next part of our passage, as these new uh, two uh, church planning teams split now, a new character is introduced into our story. So Paul and his, this new guy Silas, they leave, they go north, and they head to Derby and Lystra. So two cities that Paul had actually went to at the end of his first church planting journey. And our story picks up, picks up there. Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance uh, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the church was strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So the next part of our story as we move into uh, Paul's second missionary journey, a new guy shows up. We have a new character that enters that's super important. We'll see him uh, not only throughout Acts, but also throughout the New Testament. This new guy, this new younger guy named Timothy, he joins Paul and Silas and their church planting team. So who's this guy? So Timothy, uh, we're just meeting him now. He's from the city of Lystra where Paul was before and probably converted when Paul uh, on his first missionary journey when he went to this city, preached the gospel, and planted a church. So this guy, Timothy, his father was a Greek who was not Jewish, so a Greek who did not believe, and his mother and his grandmother were Jews who did believe, Jews who became Christians and knew the scripture really well. And then this guy, Timothy, he had great spiritual maturity we just read about. So Paul comes back to the city where he started a church, and you see this guy kind of rising to the surface again, not because he's special, but because the Spirit is empowering this guy, maturing this guy, using this guy. And Paul says he's going to replace John Mark. He's going to be a part of our next church planting journey. So Paul brings him along. We actually see this guy throughout the New Testament. Like I said, uh, he's described as being deeply loved by Paul. He's described as a son in the faith and a fellow co-worker. And this is the guy uh, later on in the story who is a leader uh, in the city of Ephesus. And Paul writes two letters back to him telling him how to establish and, and uh, 
establish elders and uh, encourage and grow the churches in the city of Ephesus. So if you've ever read the New Testament books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, they're written by Paul, written back to this guy later on in the story as he leads the church in Ephesus. So that's who this guy is. He's going to be a main character in the story for uh, this next missionary journey, and we'll see a bunch of him. But I bet you guys are all wondering, what was going on in verse 3? What a weird verse 3, right? Verse 3 said, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he said, Timothy, you're going to be a part of our team. Join us. Take John Mark's spot. And so Paul took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Strange, huh? So I, I can just imagine this conversation that's going along. Timothy, you want to come with us? We're going to have this great adventure. We're going to go all over the ancient world. We're going to spread the gospel. We're going to plant churches. There's just one thing. I'm going to have to circumcise you. Oh, no, now you're out? You don't want to come? Sorry, you already signed the contract. So, so what's going on here, right? Not just funny, but also strange or crazy. So first of all, just the, the strange part of it, you might just be wondering, circumcision, that's weird. What's going on? And very simply, there's so much more we could say about this, but very simply, circumcision was the covenant symbol between God and his people Israel. So it was a marker that a male was uh, a, a Jewish person. So that's strange, but that's just what it was. So if you were circumcised, it demonstrated that you were a part of God's people, that you were a Jewish person. But second, you might just be asking, hey, that I was here last week, I heard what Mark said, or you just recapped it just a few minutes ago. All the church got together and said, no, no, Christians don't have to be circumcised before becoming Christians. Christians don't have to become Jews and follow the law to become Christians. So what, what, is, what is Paul doing? Did he forget? Does he just uh, want to test Timothy to see how uh, strong he was or how determined he was? But even though it's strange, uh, here in Acts 16, we get the reason why. So what Paul's doing here then, he's not contradicting what the Jerusalem council just taught, but he knew that if Timothy was going to accompany him in this new church planning missionary type journey, he knew that Timothy's uncircumcision would continually be a barrier to ministry. So this has nothing to do with Timothy's salvation. Timothy's saved. He is a believer. That, that, is, that is secure. So it has nothing to do with that. But rather, Paul knows that Timothy's from this region. He's well known. Everyone knows that his father is Greek and that Timothy is not a full Jew. He's both Greek and Jewish and that he hasn't been circumcised. Paul knows that Timothy's uncircumcision is immediately going to put up barriers. Paul knows, hey, we're going into this region, and we're going to plant churches here, and my main strategy is to first go to synagogues and to preach to Jews and tell them, Jesus is the Messiah, the one we're looking for. But he knows that if one of his main guys who's helping him do this is not a Jewish person, is Greek, immediately they're going to say, whoa, whoa, hold up. Not even going to listen to you, Paul. Who is this guy? This guy is not one of us. And so Paul and Timothy together decide for the sake of more people hearing the gospel, for the sake of removing a barrier that will immediately put plugs in people's ears, he's going to become like a Jew in order to try to reach these Jewish people. He chooses, Paul and, Paul and Timothy together, they choose to remove a barrier that would keep the gospel from reaching many people. 
So Paul and Barnabas, or sorry, Paul and Timothy literally choose to remove this barrier. Pun intended. So Paul, Paul has Timothy circumcised. <laughs> so, so Paul has Timothy circumcised as a sign of respecting his Jewish brothers and sisters, his ethnic Jewish brothers and sisters, and as an attempt to keep the unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile believers. He doesn't want to create any unnecessary burden to the ministry that they're about to do. And we see throughout the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament, uh, Timothy had an incredibly successful ministry among the Jewish people and non-Jewish people as well. He was someone that the Spirit used in great ways to bridge Jews and Gentiles, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And so we see both wisdom uh, as well as the Spirit using this very strange type thing. So here we are seeing Paul and Timothy's deep conviction that we can give up not just our comfort and our preferences, but as Christians, we can give up our own rights because we're complete and accepted in the gospel. We don't need to demand our own rights because we have fully been accepted in Jesus Christ and we're fully complete in him. We can give up our desires, our wants. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, but what about Titus? Some of you maybe know there's another guy named Titus. Very similar story to Timothy's, actually. Titus, another uh, pastor in uh, Crete, actually. Paul um, writes a letter to him, the book of Titus, in the New Testament. And... uh, the, the crowds also want Titus to get circumcised. But his story is a bit different in that Paul says, no, he doesn't have to get circumcised. So if you remember, uh, it's, this is referenced in Galatians. If you're here for our sermon series in Galatians, it comes up there. So let's read and see what, what's, what's going on here. In Galatians 2, Paul writes about this uh, event that happened with another uh, leader in the church, a guy named Titus. Picking up in verse 3, it says, But even Titus, who was with me, this is Paul speaking, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedoms that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Titus, very similar story but did not get circumcised. So kind of confusing, but hopefully this helps clarify it a bit. So first, let's look at the right. So we just talked about Timothy. So the crowds are asking, or the people that they're going to be ministering to over the next few years are going to say, if you're Jewish, why aren't you circumcised? Because Timothy was, was half Jewish. And so hearing the gospel is at stake. So the reason he does get circumcised is because they say, hey, Circumcision is going to keep people from hearing the gospel. It has nothing to do with Timothy's salvation, but has to do with mission, has to do with evangelism, has to do with removing barriers. But with Titus, something different was going on. The crowds say, you need to be circumcised, Titus. You're not a true Christian because you are circumcised. And there, Paul and, and Titus step up and say, hey, the gospel is at stake here. You're saying in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. So there they stand their ground and they say, no, we're going to give an example and show that this person does not need to be Jewish, does not need to follow the law, does not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So hopefully that kind of helps you understand the craziness of what's uh, going on here in uh, Acts 15 and 16. 
And so here again, go back to Timothy and, and Paul and Silas here. Here again, we're seeing Paul's missionary strategy. He's done this a bunch already. He's, do, he's done this through his sermons as, as well. But we're seeing Paul's missionary strategy where he says, for the sake of people hearing the gospel, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to remove whatever barriers that are going to stumble people. I'm going to remove those so that they can hear the gospel. For the sake of others, even just getting the chance to hear about Jesus, he removes all different kinds of barriers. He gives up his desires. Paul gives up his preferences, his comforts, and even his rights. For the sake of more and more people hearing about Jesus, Paul intentionally adapts to different audiences, different cultures, and different needs, while at the same time always uncompromising the gospel. Right? So that's what we see when the difference between Timothy and Titus there. Paul has a missionary strategy. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of more people hearing this gospel message, he denies his desires and his wants. Paul chooses to be all things to all people, a phrase that he uses in 1 Corinthians 9. He adapts to different audiences, cultures, and needs while not compromising the gospel. A tough balance. In uh, 1 Corinthians, he writes about this. He writes back to another one of the churches he plants, and he says this, For I am free for all, from all. I have made myself, sorry, for though I am free from all, I can do whatever I want. In Christ, I have all this freedom. But I have made myself a servant to all. Why? that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself I'm not under the law, in order that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. So we see this played out in Paul's words and his actions, Timothy's words and his actions, that in order to reach a group of people, they try to be like them. They don't compromise the gospel, but they change. They, they adapt. They're not trying to be inauthentic, but they're trying to love people deeply. And so they give up their desires and even their needs and their rights for the sake of others hearing. Tony Moretta, X29 pastor, and he has a commentary on the book of Acts, writes about this. He says, as Christians, our goal, or as churches, our goal isn't to press our culture onto another. Paul and, Paul and Timothy don't come and say, hey, you have to look just like this Greek city in Antioch. Or hey, you have to look just like this Jewish uh, church that's meeting in Jerusalem. They don't do that. Our goal isn't to press our culture onto another culture, but to press the gospel into various cultures. And so, the story of Acts continues. The second great missionary journey uh, begins. And we see this here with Paul and Silas and now this new guy, Timothy. They grow throughout many cities, strengthening the believers, letting them know about what the Jerusalem Council said. And they also preach the, the good news in different cities. More people believe. The, the churches are strengthened and excited. And more churches are planted. And we're going to see more and more of that as we continue. A few things as we leave here today. A few things that we can take away and apply to our lives from today's passage. The first one I want us to see 
that flawed, we need to be reminded of this, flawed, imperfect men men and women, the gospel is for you. So if you resonate with this at all, if you're honest with yourself at all, and you just know your flaws, you know your imperfections, you know your fears, your sins, your past, let me tell you, the gospel is for you. The gospel is good news for flawed and imperfect people, both for our salvation and even beyond that, out of that, also for the power and the motivation to do ministry. You don't have to be the, the, the best speaker, the, the most experienced, the greatest Bible knowledge in order to be used by God for ministry. The gospel is for us, flawed, imperfect people, both for our salvation and for the power and motivation for ministry. Philippians 3, Paul again, writing to a different church, writes about this. He says, he reminds Christians, in Christ we can be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we don't have to be perfect. As Christians, or if you're not a Christian, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be righteous. You don't have to fix yourself in order to come to Christ. We don't have to be perfect because he was. Jesus was perfect. And if we trust in him, his perfectness, his righteousness, his holiness is gifted to us. We get to wear it. It becomes our own. Because Jesus was perfect, if we trust in him, we are righteous. We are perfect. And secondly, just like Paul and Timothy and Barnabas and Silas and John Mark and many of the characters in Acts did this, but even more importantly, like Jesus did this, let us deny ourselves and sacrificially remove any type of barriers from non-Christians in our lives. Looking like Jesus, right? Not only did the characters in our story do this, but Jesus did this, right? And so denying ourselves giving up our wants, our desires, even our needs and our rights for the sake of winning more, for the sake of removing barriers that keep people from hearing the gospel. We need to do this, Christian. This is, our, this is going to be a sacrifice. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. It's going to entail us being uncomfortable. It's going to entail us not doing what we want to do with our time and our treasure and our talents and our resources. And this is also going to include us not clinging on to our needs not clinging on to our rights at times so that others may hear the gospel. And in doing so, they will also not just hopefully hear the gospel, but they will see the gospel even demonstrated in how you're giving up your own rights and wants and needs. When they see you and me and us, individually and as a church, giving up our stuff in order to become more like them, in order to be kinder to them or closer to them, when they see that happening, it will show them a tangible, visible picture of what Jesus did, right? Jesus didn't shout from heaven as the second person of the Trinity, believe in me, but he actually became like those he was trying to reach. Let's end with reminding ourselves to do this, deny ourselves, high wealth of church, and sacrificially remove barriers as we move towards people with the gospel message. But let's end with someone Jesus Christ, who did this a billion times better than we could ever do. And let that be the motivation and the power for us to do this. In Philippians 2, 3 through 8, we read about Jesus doing this, denying himself, removing his own power and his comfort, 
in order to reach those that he loved deeply, in order to become like those he was trying to save. In Philippians 2, 3-8, we read about Christ. First, it says to the church, Church, do this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though... He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, looking like those he was trying to reach. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hiawatha Church, let's let this good news be the motivation and the power that leads us to move towards a lost world with the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that first and foremost, you are the great missionary. Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and others just uh, are a glimpse, just a whisper of you being the great missionary that, that became like those he was trying to reach, that left the comfort of his home, condescended himself, became human, and even became a servant to win us back, to ransom us back from Satan's sin and death. So God, help us to be a church that's like that. Let, let, the gospel, let the gospel be the motivation and the power that makes us uh, a sent church, missionary individuals in Berlin and Costa Rica and in France and here in the, the United States and all across the Twin Cities and here in our neighborhood. God, help us. Help us with that. We thank you for the gospel and its implications in our, li- our own lives. Help us to believe it. Empower us flawed and perfect people even more through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.